Now all across North Carolina, it's Carolina Newsmakers. Here's your host, Don Curtis. Well, welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. This week we have an uh, old friend back with us who's been with us a number of times. That would be Bruce Stanley, who is the President and Chief Executive Officer of the Methodist Home for Children. He is now entering his 18th year in service to that organization. And uh, Bruce, it's amazing how time does fly. <laughs> Don, it's good to be with you again and good to be with the audience as well. And I just am amazed when you toss that number 18 out there. Time, time does fly. Well, I have a friend who says that life is much like a roll of toilet paper. The closer you get to the end, the faster it goes. <laughs> Well, when I was a young pastor starting out, I went to visit one of the old timers in the church who was in his mid-80s, and he talked about what he called time compression. And he said, when you get to be my age, you'll understand. But he said, a year for you since you're 25 is only 1 25th of your life experience. And he said, I'm 85, so a year is 1 85th. And he said, it seems <laughs> like a tiny thing, and they go by quickly. They do go by quickly. Well, Bruce, uh, we have you on for a couple of reasons. One, to bring us up to date on what's happening at the Methodist Home for Children, uh, which is an advocacy organization for not only children, but also for families. Uh, but uh, also just to talk about uh, the problems that children are having these days uh, and are facing. Uh, children have always had problems, but they are always changing. And... Uh, we now deal with so many different problems with uh, the youth that uh, that you and I did not have when we were in our respective periods of youth. Uh, so let's sort of bring us up to date on where children are today and and uh, look at the various age groups from, say, uh, uh, early childhood and then the teenage years as well. In Methodist Home for Children in a given year will serve about 1,300 children, youth, and their families. And we do that in a variety of ways. We have a service array that occasionally acts as a continuum with children or youth moving from one service area to another. The services we have that begin at birth would include the two early childhood programs, the Jordan Center and, of course, the Curtis Center, and then also foster care, therapeutic foster care, and adoptions and family preservation, family reunification services. Those services extend well up uh, into late adolescence and occasionally even into adulthood. While we do family preservation, family reunification, foster care, we're best known for residential programming. And we currently are operating 15 residential facilities that st stretch all the way across North Carolina. Our westernmost home is in Macon County in the county seat of Franklin. And our easternmost, depending on um, how you're looking at the map, would either be um, in Hertford or else in Jacksonville. And then we also have got a lifetime commitment to put anybody who's been in one of our group homes or in foster care adopted through four years of college. And so we continue to work with people up through their 20s. And you are right about the shifting needs and the things that children are facing right now. One of the scourges that we are dealing with um, is gun crimes. And anybody who pays any attention at all to any form of media, irrespective of what the platform is, knows that these really have become a scourge. And the access to those guns is just way too easy. One of the things that has developed is a phenomenon known as a community gun. And it will be particularly used by gang members, and they're savvy enough about their own neighborhood to know which residences have attracted the attention of the police in times past. 
And so they will find a home or residence in a community that has had no action, no interaction, and it's there that they'll stash a gun or guns. So instead of carrying them around and having them in their possession all the time, they'll use these safeties or these cutouts and go use the gun and then bring it back. And then others in the community and others in the gang can easily access that. And a lot of the guns that they're coming into possession of are being um, obtained by theft, and that's done by young gang members. And older gang members will send them into a parking lot and tell them to flip. And that means they go flip door handles. And when they're flipping, they won't stay in a vehicle long because the guns are almost always in one of three places. They're either under the seat in the center console or the glove box. So they will just check those three locations. And they're smart enough to profile. And if they're looking at a vehicle that has got an NRA bumper sticker on it or a Second Amendment or a Sheriff's Association uh, honorary member, they're going to target that vehicle and assume that that person is probably a gun owner. But we are seeing many, many more gun crimes than we have in the past. Well, you know, we have a lot of people are advocating for gun control, but that's on the sale of future guns. The problem that I see is the fact that there's so many guns already out there. Uh, there's probably, if we, if we didn't sell another gun, there are plenty of them out there. Um, so leave that uh, as a, as a uh, item that uh, we could discuss in more detail of how we go about gun control sales in the future. But right now, what can we do uh, to eliminate the, these problems and how do we get the guns out of the hands of these folks who don't need to have them. Well, the key is intervention and prevention. And we do an awful lot of remedial work. We're the largest provider for the state of North Carolina for therapeutic residential alternatives uh, to prison for adolescents. But we'd like not to be in that business at all. And what we need to be doing is giving the children as positive an experience as we can in early childhood and then making sure that they've got opportunities as they're growing through adolescence. Gang involvement um, goes hand in hand with uh, gun, gun use. And it is amazing the number of gangs that exist in the state of North Carolina. And that includes adult gangs and motorcycle gangs as well. And when we get someone who is, is gang involved, our clinicians say that generally somebody enters into the gang life for two reasons. One is thrill seeking. And the second one is that they lack any family structure and the gang becomes their family. And they say that if you've got somebody who's entered because they're a thrill seeker, that it's relatively easy to extract them from the gang because all you need to do is give them a positive thrill and something that they can do to get a rise out of that uh, really is productive and constructive. And the children that are real difficult to get away from the gangs are the ones who have indeed encountered that and they have found support. They've got somebody buying them clean clothes and shoes for the first time, perhaps providing them even with a bed for the first time, a bed of their own, a place to sleep. And so the proliferation of gangs is one of the places that we have to do a tremendous amount of work. Uh, so, uh, I, I, you know, there, I think there's a tendency to most people to think that, uh, that gangs are isolated to metropolitan areas or large cities. And there definitely is that stereotype. And since you've asked that question, you know the um, you know the answer to that is that they really are very widespread, and they, they are all um, across the state. And they're out in the mountains. They're east of I ninety five. They're there in Roanoke Rapids um, as well as in Raleigh. Uh, so 
uh, how are the police handling this situation, and what help can we give to the law enforcement agencies who are uh, who are facing these gangs as potential criminals and uh, uh, and are trying to control them in many different ways? It's being worked on at a lot of different levels, um, and that's going to include the law enforcement folks who are there on the ground or in their vehicles patrolling the community. It's being worked on by school resource officers in the communities that have those. It's being worked on you know, by administrative staffs, district attorney's offices, governor's crime commission. Everyone is incredibly aware of it, but it is such a pervasive problem and, um, and so tremendously difficult. One of the things that the police know that they can't do is arrest their way out of this problem, that it continues to grow and a burgeon, and that it has to be relational work that's done. And particularly when you get youth, they need to make sure that they um, have got established relationships and that the school resource officer or else the officers who are patrolling their communities are not seen somehow as if they're the enemy and the threat, but they've got to develop close personal relationships with them. And I'm also going to say a lot of this falls upon the church as well. When I was the director of field education at Duke Divinity School, we had a pastor from Boston come down who delivered the Gardner C. Taylor lectures. And at that lecture, he talked about having invited leaders of the gangs in his community to come and to meet with him one day, that it had been difficult to get them to come because they were all suspicious this was going to be some kind of setup. But when they finally came and sat down, he was talking to him about his kids, and one of them said, you need to blame yourself and not blame us. And pastors, what do you mean? And they said, well, we recruit after school. And when middle school's out, we've got our guys there, and they're looking for the kid that's being bullied, the one who looks dirty, the one who seems to be alone and have nobody to take care of them. And they said that we're recruiting every day, and we don't see the deacons from your church. We don't see those people out there doing the same kind of recruiting and having the same kind of awareness. And so I think congregations have got a tremendous amount of responsibility as well. And again, it comes back to establishing healthy relationships. Well, you mentioned something. Uh, you mentioned basically middle school. So is that when the recruiting begins? Um, for children who are not associated or affiliated with the gang, absolutely. And some may be on the fringes of the margins before that. And some, of course, are brought in by their families. We've got a 12-year-old who's um, been in one of our programs whose uh, mom put a gun in his hand and told him to go do some work and sent him into a house to discharge the weapon. And it's mind-boggling that that's the case, but sometimes these are family members that are recruiting their own family members. That's uh, that's, that's sad and discouraging. So, uh, so you, you mentioned the churches. Uh, a lot of churches have a youth director, but basically they are dealing with children who are coming to church and who are already expressing some interest in church activities. What should the churches, should they have another type of youth ministry that goes after and recruits, as you suggested? I think absolutely that you know, we need to be more proactive with that. And there are many um, congregations that have got relationships with uh, elementary and middle schools. And a lot of those are around efforts to feed kids and called backpack buddies and make sure that they've got a backpack full of food to take home on the weekend. And now, you know, providing that during the summers um, as well. But those kind of efforts need to be expanded. And it's not enough simply for a church to sit on site and to take uh, those who come you know, across their threshold. We do have to be much more aggressive about that. 
The other thing I thought you mentioned that was interesting is they look for children who are being bullied. Um, so those children are actually looking for some protection. Exactly. And they, they are vulnerable. And a lot of times the um, bullying re reinforces an already weak sense of self-esteem. And they're having a hard time um, internally. And everything that's on the inside eventually ends up on the outside. And so there are behaviors that manifest themselves in the savvy person knows to look for that well this is a this is a serious concern and uh, one that uh, does not reach the the awareness of much of the public how can we uh, how can we go about acquainting the public with how serious this problem is um, this is one of the ways don and that's a great contribution you make to the community uh, in order to make this a feature you know regularly of um, radio program and it needs to be something that is shouted from pulpits. It needs to be something that's topic at school assemblies and with faculty. It needs to be shared absolutely everywhere and in every part of our communal life. Our guest is Bruce Stanley, President and CEO of the Methodist Home for Children. And we have focused a great deal so far on, uh, on, uh, on uh, crime and also the uh, gang situation in the state of North Carolina. We've got many other topics to talk about, and we'll do that when we return with the next segment of Carolina Newsmakers. So you stay tuned. Steven. Who said that? Me. Down here. <gasps> what are you, a yellow booger? I'm a banana slug, Steven. Well, uh, what are you doing in my room? I'm your sense of adventure. Don't you remember me? Don't you know that we miss you? Miss me? Who misses me? You know, all your friends in the forest. The trees, the pond, that little fort that you made out of branches. We all miss you. Mom took me to the forest last year. I'm a slug, Steven. It took me a long time to get here. Oh, I guess that makes sense. This forest is not that far away. Have an adventure today. I'm sure your mom would take you. You're right. I should get out. I want to have fun. Plant puddles, catch frogs, and climb trees. Hey, Mom! Yeah, hon? <gasps> Stephen! What is that in your hand? It's my sense of adventure, Mom. It's telling me we need to get out of the house and have some fun in nature today. Come to the forest where the more adventurous you lives. Check out discovertheforest.org for cool places nearby. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. When you went car shopping, you meant business. You ace vehicle history searches and test drives. You out salesmen to the salesman. Now you've got your wheels. If you manage that, you can get your retirement plan on track. Visiting aceyourretirement.org can help. With 401k tips and smart saving strategies, you'll have the info you need to get more for your future. Go to aceyourretirement.org. Because when it comes to speeding past financial challenges, you're an ace. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. We continue with Carolina Newsmakers. Here's Don Curtis. We're back on Carolina Newsmakers with Bruce Stanley, who, we have said, is now in his 18th year of service as President and Chief Executive Officer of the Methodist Home for Children, which, of course, had its origins as a orphanage, but uh, got away from that some number of years away, a uh, year, and have expanded their work into many, many different areas of not only serving children, but also family intervention and so forth. Uh, Bruce, let's talk a little bit about early childhood. Uh, and is the situation getting better? I mean, we've got, uh, uh, we've started the preschool programs in the public schools. Uh, what can we do to make those more effective and exactly how should they be changed to make the, the uh, 
problems of early childhood less and less. One of the things that would be at the top of my wish list, if not at the very top, would be quality, early childhood education available for everyone. We're already doing public education, um, as you've noted, with um, kindergartners and going you know, K through 12. It seems to me that we, you never get a second chance um, to participate in the brain development of a child. Maria Montessori um, was correct. She didn't have the science or research behind her when she was working back in the 1920s. But she said that um, 80% of what a child would learn, they would learn within the first five years of their life. And so we do need to strengthen the funding and get adequate support um, for early childhood programs. And part of that funding, of course, is going to pay and going to be to pay reasonable wages. Nationwide, fewer than 20% of early childhood educators receive either a 401k um, or health insurance as part of a benefit at work. And if you're going to operate early childhood as a for-profit business, you do that by hiring the least experienced, least educated person you can having them only work 20 hours a week, and then you've got split shifts, so you have a lack of continuity in the classroom. And then you're also going to make your teachers do their own cleaning. And if you're going to have a quality educational program, we need to have you know, top-flight educators and people who are really experienced and savvy and understand developmental and motivational theory. And we need adequate funding you know, to pay teachers and administrators as well as the operational expenses of the program themselves. The uh, NC Pre-K program in North Carolina has an awful lot to recommend it, and that is for children who come from homes where there is low or no level of literacy. So that may simply be parents who are not well-educated themselves, or it may be parents who are coming from another uh, culture, and English is not something that is easily obtained within that household. And the NC Pre-K program has made a tremendous impact already, but I think it needs to be more broadly expanded and available to everyone. And quality child care is beastly expensive. You, we have more and more families where uh, these days, and this has been going on for some time, this is not, certainly not something that's new, where both members of the family or are, are the parents are working. So that means that they are not at home when the children come home from school. Um, what programs are out there for kids after school you mentioned earlier in the earlier segment that this is where the gangs seem to compromise, uh, you know, take their first target and say, "Look, these kids don't have any any supervision during that period of time in their lives." And children are vulnerable then, and um, and we do need um, more quality programming. YMCA does a great job with that. Boys and girls clubs do a great job with that. A lot of early childhood programs, including the ones that Methodist Home for Children operates, you know, will be open um, until six. And quite frankly, they'll stay past six if there's a parent they know has a job that they can't get away from in order to get there and to um, pick up that child. And so we do need um, adequate programming there. Another challenge that we've got has to do with school suspensions, that the majority of juvenile offenses are not committed um, late at night and they're not committed on weekends, but the majority of them are committed during the school day. And when you get kids who are bounced out, it really um, leaves them twisting in the wind and they're able to be completely on their own and they need educational opportunities and they need perhaps to be taught even more than anyone else. So we've got, got to find a way to end out-of-school suspension as well. 
Where do you feel like we are coming up with, uh, with the most problems in age groups? Is it in preschool or is it in the elementary age or is it the junior high age or the, the senior high age? I'm going to say it's across the board, Don, and you don't, again, we don't get a second chance um, because the meter's running and the clock is always ticking for these children. But if you, you can predict uh, a child who's going to do well and avoid involvement with the law enforcement system, and that's going to be a child who's raised birth through five in an environment in which there is high stimulus and low stress. And if you want to know who's going to predict poorly, and who's going to be at risk for school failure, that's just flip the script, and it's going to be a child who's raised in a home where there is low stimulus and where there is high stress. And so all the things that uh, would seem routine to um, healthy functioning parents, which would be reading to your child regularly, having an assigned bedtime that is observed and kept every night, an assigned mealtime, regular time for bathing, all of those uh, components of structure you know, lead uh, to diminished stress and help children to feel well assured. And then the stimulus, of course, is going to be not simply having somebody read to them on a regular basis, but you've got to have soft toys. And you've also got to have um, meaningful conversation and some enrichment experiences as well. And so at every step of the way, we've got an opportunity to make a positive impact. And we need to make sure that we're engaging children and youth and even their families um, all along the way. Teachers, of course, interact with their students, and I'm sure that they see problems. Who, how do, when they see a problem with a student, what is their resource? Who do they turn to for help because they can't solve the problem in the classroom? And my wife was a teacher, Don, and your wife was a teacher, and you know that many of the teachers are doing social work themselves that they're spending money out of their family budget in order to make sure somebody's got clean clothes, um, adequate pair of shoes. They're staying after school in order to talk and to hear and to listen. And their work and their commitment you know, goes far beyond what they're doing during their classroom hours. And schools need to have school psychologists attached to them. There are very few that do, but we've got a mental health crisis that's um, affecting our entire nation and our society at many, many levels. And having school resource officers there is one bit of help, but we need school psychologists and school social workers as well so that these um, youth have a place to go and somewhere that they can unpack some of the challenges they have and simply um, be made to understand that the internal processes that they're going through don't mean that they're odd or freakish anyway. anyway. It just simply means that they're young and developing. You mentioned uh, having school psychologists. Of course, if if funds were available uh, for school psychologists in every school, do we have the candidates to fill those jobs? And are the college students today uh, looking at that as a potential career? Yeah, that would, I hate to say everything comes down to funding, but it probably does. And if those were positions that were held in high esteem and in our culture, money is how you obtain high esteem too often. But if they were held in high regard, that that might become a much more attractive um, opportunity for a young person in order to study. But the answer to your first question is if we were to be able to wave a magic wand and have funded positions for school psychologists everywhere, we absolutely would not have enough people in order to fill those spots. 
peer pressure is always a problem, but I would imagine it is a bigger problem in certain age periods. Where is peer pressure the biggest concern? And that really starts in middle school in in terms of um, the biggest concern and presents itself uh, well into high school. And we talk about that uh, clinically as being the tyranny of the peer group because it really can be tyrannical behaviors. And it's um, not simply enough for somebody to put somebody in a positive peer environment, um, such as an activity group at school or perhaps a youth group at church. Those are important, but you've got to move beyond having simply positive peer reinforcement because that all that does is reinforce the tyranny of the peer group, and they continue to look for others and take their cues from others. And what we need to do is deep work with each individual so that the children can learn to think for themselves and make decisions about what is best for me and what do I need to do uh, in order to improve and continue to grow. And so there's got to be a, a lot of time and a lot of thought given to how, to how to motivate the individual student. I would think that coaches could play a big role because a participation in an athletic team creates a family-type atmosphere. Um, what are we doing to, and of course, not all students are athletically blessed. Is, is this something that we need to expand even more? Oh, absolutely. And I think you're spot on with regard to the role that coaches can play. And many of the coaches that um, I had the privilege of growing up with um, were really heroic individuals and just high, high levels of commitment and they cared much more about the people they were producing um, as, as opposed to the results or the score um, that might, might happen to be on the board. But that is a, a great place, and I would love to see where we had enough um, participation opportunities for sports that everyone, irrespective of how gifted they might be, you know, would have an opportunity to go. Because the team it does create a family situation. Oh, it does, and I look back on my youth – and I was able to play basketball in high school because I came from a small area. We only had one player over six feet tall on our entire team. And um, so I could even occasionally play down low. But I recognized that if I had gone to a high school or been part of a graduating class with more than about 180 people in it, there's no way in the world. Uh, they would have even let me sit on the bench and fold towels or hand out water bottles, which is pretty much what I did. Um, but those, those kind of opportunities need to be out there. And when we've got such large magnet schools and um, such a tremendous area, it becomes really, really difficult for anybody other than the athletically gifted to get an opportunity to be in that environment. So, Bruce, uh, I guess you're telling me that uh, Coach K and Dean Smith did not recruit you as a uh, basketball player. I'm still waiting for the phone to ring every time, the, uh, every year when the NBA draft occurs. I just am amazed that the phone does not ring. I have my own little green room that I'm sitting in with my family all around, and I'm disconsolate at the end of the night. <laughs> uh, well, we've talked a lot about the schools and how they play a role. We want to turn uh, to some other problems in the next segment. But just uh, if you could uh, wave a magic wand, what would be your number one priority right now for changing things in the school situation? Mm. I've already alluded or already referenced um, having school psychologists that would be there. And then I also would like to see school resource officers have an opportunity to be more um, 
aggressively recruited and for those to be positions that are held in high regard. We really need the most skilled law enforcement officers we have to develop those relationships and to work with those young people. And what you get in too many places is that being a school resource officer is looked at as the uh, low one on the totem pole. And in some places, it's almost considered remediation or remedial duty that if you perform poorly elsewhere, you'll get busted down the chain of command and you'll end up as a school resource officer. And so I would love to see those be high paid, highly coveted positions by, held by the most skilled law enforcement. Well, certainly it would take a lot more skill. Uh, that should be, as you said, a high priority, not a low priority as far as the skill level, because they're dealing with unique problems. Our guest is Bruce Stanley, president and CEO of the Methodist Home for Children. And we'll be back in, in the next segment. We're going to talk about alcohol and drug abuse, amongst other things. And we'll do that right after we take time out for these messages. You wanted to see me? Yes, please, have a seat. So here's the thing. When this company brought you on, we took a chance on you. You didn't have that four-year college degree we typically look for. Right. But we gave you a shot anyway. And since then, you've worked incredibly hard and given it your all. Thanks. You've been an important asset to the team. But I don't think you can be an intern here anymore. <sighs> we want to hire you. You're... You're serious? Absolutely. Find your next great employee. Introduce yourself to the grads of life. Who are they? Talent worth knowing about. Young adults of unique determination and experience. An ideal fit for your company in an entry-level position, internship, or even mentorship. They might not have every qualification you typically look for, but they're exactly who your company needs. I won't let you down. I know. Don't miss out on a resource many innovative companies have already discovered. Go to gradsoflife.org to learn how to find, cultivate, and train this great pool of untapped talent. Brought to you by the Ad Council and gradsoflife.org. Hi, it's Olivia Munn with my shelter pets, Frankie and Chance. Say hi, guys. When I adopted them, I discovered that they both have incredible personalities. Chance's sole purpose in life is to love and to be loved. Frankie is a little bit of a scoundrel and always entertaining. They're a little bit of a lot of things, but they're all pure love. Adopt Pure Love at theshelterpetproject.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council, the Humane Society of the United States, and Maddie's Fund. Now, once again, with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis. We're back on Carolina Newsmakers. Our guest, uh, frequent guest on our program, has been with us a number of times through the years, is Bruce Stanley, who has been serving as the CEO of the Methodist Home for Children now for 18 years. And the Methodist Home for Children has outgrown its original uh, challenge of being an orphanage to being uh, an organization that serves not only troubled youth, but also in family intervention and, and other numerous problems that deal with youth and families. Bruce, we want to talk a little bit about uh, alcohol and drug abuse because this is always a concern. Uh, and I want to start with binge drinking because that was a serious problem uh, a couple of years ago. Has that gotten any better or are we, do, are we still faced with that problem? I think we are still faced with that problem. And it is, um, seems to me that anytime we take a step forward, that we take a couple of steps back as well. And you've got the proliferation now, um, not only of alcohol in the traditional forms or with beer, but you know, with all of these um, different seltzers that are being sold in all kinds of flavors. And, you know, White Claw might be the best-known brand, but it seems that Seagram's and everyone else out there has got them. And they're coming in raspberry and blueberry and all kinds of flavors. 
And that is, has become a challenge, particularly for underage drinkers, um, for us to shut down and to try to divert. And it's a problem. And, of course, you've also got the problem with smoking and vaping. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. And the um, hopefully the uh, vaping is going to get under control and uh, be legislated out. We made tremendous progress, progress uh, with diminished cigarette use uh, because of legislation. And um, yeah, vaping is um, definitely something that for a period of time, and again, you get back to attractive flavors and, and where that is seen as um, an easier thing to access than cigarettes. And for whatever reason, started to acquire um, some legitimacy. But that, that is a tremendous problem. And if we're... We have... Go ahead. I was going to say, and we, you've got to include uh, marijuana use in there as well. And with marijuana being legalized in 16 of the 50 states, I think you can make the argument um, that the discussion is already over and the direction in which it would seem our country is moving is clear. And in the minds of many youth, even though we live in a state where it is still illegal, in their mind, with what they're seeing and what they're experiencing um, online as well as uh, in the community, is that it must be fine because it's legal somewhere else. And that has become a challenge, and we're seeing that prevalent as well. And it's also coming in attractive forms. Apparently, the fruit flavors are a good idea for all forms of marketing uh, because you've got gummies and beverages as well that are laced with the THC. Which is uh, unbelievable that someone would manufacture that, but that's aside from the point. That's almost, well, it is criminal. Uh, I'm sorry to say it's almost criminal, but it is criminal. In North Carolina. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, 21, is that the appropriate drinking age or does age really not play in a, as a factor because it, they have access anyway? Don, that is a difficult question. And, and that's probably something that we can discuss, uh, for hours on end. I think you can make, um, a good argument for 21, uh, being the age based upon, um, the you know, results we've gotten from diminished drunk driving and what we know about adolescent brain formation and the prefrontal cortex, the center for logic and for executive functioning uh, being something that arrives later in boys than in girls. And so on one hand, that seems to make some great sense. On the other hand, culturally, I think we know that when somebody goes off to a college environment or when they go off to a military, they're you know, looking at that as being an arbitrary, 21 as being an arbitrary number and thinking at age 18, I can die for my country and I can vote, but I can't have a beer. And that doesn't seem to make much sense. And so I think that having it at age 21 is disingenuous um, for those particular reasons. And then I am afraid that at age 21, that that does invite more binge drinking. You get on a college campus Somebody's going to go to a sporting event or perhaps to a concert, and so they're going to pregame or preload and start doing shots and tossing down beverage, beverage after beverage in order to get that done before they uh, get out the door. And I hate for that to be the case. We have tried a number of ways to educate young people about the dangers of substance abuse. Are we making any progress? That's a constant educational battle. And if we make progress, I'm going to say that it's incremental. And I don't want us to be discouraged by that because it's person by person and case by case. We know that just say no 
was massively ineffective. Um, that what we have to have is something that is tailored toward an individual and proper behaviors that are modeled by uh, adults that are respected and uh, close by and adjacent to, um, to adolescents in the community and in their lives. And so we do have to continue to try to educate and again, model in our own lives the appropriate use and appropriate behavior. Royce, this is away from uh, drinking, but it is uh, a change. And uh, many of the parents probably are, are facing this as a question. But when you and I came up, uh, we could not wait to get our driver's license because we thought that was freedom. All of a sudden, we could go places and do things that we could not do before without a driver's license. But nowadays, I understand that a large number of teenagers either don't have a driver's license or don't even want one. What is bringing that about? I am mystified by that, Don, and I've got a niece who did not get her driver's license until she was 23. And what makes that funny in my family is that my brother, who lives real close to her, is actually a driver's ed instructor and has had his own vehicle. And her uncle uh, would have done it for nothing and taught her, but she simply didn't want the responsibility. And she was able to get where she needed to go by just bumming a ride with friends and hitching with other people. And in conversations with her, I don't know that I have, was ever satisfied by any answer she gave other than to say, yeah, she just wasn't all that interested in it. I think that's a fascinating change, I, you know, because uh, I would think that uh, kids today would still see this as a way to have more personal freedom and more opportunity to, uh, to go to concerts and, you know, all sorts of things. But I guess it's not. And I think, because, it, I think it broadly falls into the category of uh, what young people are now calling adulting. And that has become a phenomenon in which they are. Now, what is, what is that? <laughs> Adulting, that, that means when you're having to take responsibility for your own life, pay your own bills, earn your own paycheck, and uh, get yourself out of bed and to uh, school or work on time, and uh, get yourself to bed at a reasonable hour so that you've got enough energy for the day ahead of you. And I think that driving just falls into that category. That's amazing. So are you dealing with that with families that you're working with? We are. And with the issue, uh, the, and the broader issue um, in and around adulting um, has to do with developing skills. One of the programs that we have that we're going to be doing um, in September, we call the real world. And we bring children in who are in foster homes or children in who are in, who are in our group homes. And then onto the campus, we'll bring, for instance, a used car dealer who will bring half a dozen cars there for them. We'll bring insurance agents and we'll bring some landlords in who've got some lease agreements. And then at the beginning of that day, we will give monopoly money in different amounts to, to different uh, youth. And then they've got to go around and secure an apartment. They've got to get insurance. They've got to figure out how to pay for an automobile uh, based on the uh, dollar amount that they've got and the income they have and make sure that the peanut butter goes all the way across the bread and that they're living within their means but it's a, usually a tremendous shock. And I would have thought uh, before I came to Methodist Over Children that 15 and 16-year-olds would have had a good sense of this. But the amount of surprise that we've got um, and is shown by our young people um, is fascinating to me. But we, we consider this to be enough 
of a challenge that we do make it part of a dedicated event as well as the teaching that we do all along the way. That's a fascinating concept. That that probably ought to be carried over to the public schools, and uh, because uh, that uh, that's one of the things I guess that uh, public educators assume is being done at home, but in reality, it's probably not. And part of our staff uh, work on that on an ongoing basis is teaching children how to grocery shop, and we'll take the youth into a store. And for many of them, it's the first time that they've ever known that you can do comparison shopping based on price and that the per unit cost is right there, you know, on the label underneath of the product. And there's no need to pay $2.23 for the can of black beans. You can pay $1.19 instead and then keep that uh, extra dollar in your pocket. Well, that's, uh, that's a really practical approach. I'm, I'm amazed. I would be surprised if that's not, not something you should do with adults as well as uh, uh, the uh, adolescents and the teenagers and those uh, in your child care. Well, that's a, that's a big part of our work with family preservation and family reunification. And when we are asked by DSS to go into a home and work with a family, that initial exposure is usually 20 hours a week for the first three weeks. And, one, and it is rare when one of our caseworkers goes into one of those circumstances where the family actually has a budget in place and that's part of the structure that they try to give them and one of the things that they show them is that you need to have a budget and beer shouldn't be the first item on it uh so uh how much of your work now deals with families uh rather than just the children aspect of the family life we are primarily a child welfare agency, and we do enough mental health work uh, to ensure the integrity of the child welfare piece. And our emphasis is always upon the children and youth, but we know there are families attached to them. And so in every, every program we've got, we have some component that is family-oriented. As a, for instance, if a youth is assigned by the court to one of our multi-purpose homes, we've got a family service specialist. And while that child may be with us for 240 days or for a longer period of time, uh, depending on the wisdom of the court, during that time, our family service specialist is going out and meeting with the family and trying to get that to be a, a structured and healthy environment so that when the child returns, they're um, able to be not only reintegrated, but um, perhaps integrated into something that's a healthier environment um, than the one that they came from. And so, we're always trying to work and trying to keep the family intact, if at all possible. Not always possible. So how do you gauge success? And I know you're dealing with problems, so you're not going to solve every one of them. So what what percentage of solutions do you feel like is, is something that you has a, have as a goal? Immediate goal for programs that we operate, sometimes those are easy to um, easy to assess. Uh, in the world of juvenile justice, our number one metric is going to be the uh, rate of recidivism. Uh, does someone recommit a crime? And if they don't show up in the system within 18 months or within 24 months, we're considering that to be a tremendous success. And, and we do have great outcomes with that kind of work. When we're dealing with young people who are in foster care, one of the things that we're always trying to gauge is progress on their relationship skills, but also how they're doing academically and the kind of work they're doing in school. But if you're going to ask me in an ultimate sense, how do we know we succeed? 
it's a long, slow dance. And if we've got a 15-year-old who's in our care, we're going to consider ourselves to be tremendously successful if when they're 35 years of age, they come into the home at the end of a day of work, kiss their wife, whom they've been married to for several years, sit down at the dinner table with their child, say grace over their meal. Then we'll consider ourselves to be incredibly successful, and we may not know until that time. That's a, that's an interesting way to look at uh, because it is a long long range project in, in almost every case. And, interesting. And, yeah, and for each one of those components, a lot of things have to go right. Yep, absolutely. Bruce Stanley is our guest. He's the president and CEO of the Methodist Home for Children. We'll be back with another segment of Carolina Newsmakers, and we'll do that right after we take time out for these messages. I spend a lot of time in the garage, but even more time in the rain, sleet, and mud. In 95, I helped tow your moving trailer. In 05, I helped you get out of a ditch. Yeah, I know I'm a bit rusty, and sadly in 09, it was sparks from me, your handy chains dragging behind your truck that accidentally started a wildfire. Sparks from dragging chains can start a wildfire. Spark a change, not a wildfire. Visit SmokeyBear.com. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. Only you can prevent wildfires. Here's a fun fact for you. The average chameleon can point their eyes in two different directions. On the other hand, the average human can't. So unless you're a chameleon, there's absolutely no way you can focus on texting and driving at the same time. So don't do it. Unless you're a chameleon. Visit StopTextsStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis. Back on Carolina Newsmakers with our guest, Bruce Stanley. We've been focusing today on the family and children and because that is his role as president and CEO of the Methodist Home for Children, where he is now entering his 18th year of service. Bruce, we've talked about all sorts of things, but one of the things we have not talked about is funding. Of course, your organization has to have funding, and of course, the government has to fund a number of these programs as well in different ways, not only with the school system, but with the law enforcement and the court system. So let's talk a little bit about where your funding comes from at the Methodist Home for Children. And we are a public-private partnership. I would like to argue that we are the finest example of that in the state of North Carolina and perhaps anywhere in the way I conceive of the world. This is how it ought to be that no one has enough talent and or enough financial resources to solve all the world's problems, but collectively uh, we can collaborate and we can work together. Our, about 85% of the funds that we receive are fees for service and come from public sector. And so that would be fees for doing foster care, fees for the residential programming through the Department of Public Safety and Division of Juvenile Justice. There would be some money that would be allocated through the NC pre-K program and some of our early childhood program, we've got children who will be in sustained um, 
because the families are come from low income and so they qualify for voucher programs. And we, the rest of the funding that we receive comes from the community, from individual donors, from businesses, and from congregations, and of course, direct funding from the North Carolina Conference of the United Methodist Church. But for each one of those, about 1,300 children, youth, and their families that we're gonna serve each year, we've got a funding gap to cover the true cost of care of about $1,600 for each one of those 1,300 family units. And we began a program several years ago to help market the funding gap that we call 1K for one kid. We probably should have rounded up instead of rounding down. Um, and that is an uh, important component of the work that we do. And without that, we really can't provide the, the best care and the best individual um, treatment for everyone who comes to us. You mentioned during one of the breaks that uh, one of the biggest problems right now is finding those who are willing to serve as foster parents. Yes, and foster care, not only in North Carolina, but really all across this country, is in crisis now, and it is because of a lack of available foster families. Currently, Methodist Home for Children is turning away 17 children for every referral we are able to accept and every child we're able to place. And the reason for that is we need foster parents. Things are so difficult, particularly um, in urban areas uh, where you've got larger populations, but you've had children who are in the foster care system that have been sleeping on cots in the uh, offices of Health and Human Services in Wake County, and it's true in other counties in North Carolina as well. And that's uh, just unconscionable that uh, no one ought to have to undergo that and, and live with that experience. And being a foster parent is not an easy thing. It really has to be a high, holy calling the training in order to um, begin doing foster parenting is significant as you would want it to be and it's uh, about 55 hours um, that you have to commit to do uh, in order to get your foster parent license and we're asking that you not only open your home but that you open your heart and that you be willing to fall deeply in love um, with these children that are placed with you but we would love for folks to contact us either through our website at mhfc.org, that's the agency's initials, methodistomeforchildren.org, or to pick up the phone and call and, um, and come and go through training and see if this might be a way in which you'd be willing to serve. One of the, one of the challenges that we have with training foster families is that in order to make the right placement and to keep from putting a, a square peg in a round hole, is that you need some slack in the chain. So if, for instance, we're gonna have 100 children in care on any one given day who are in foster homes, we probably need to have about 135 foster families that are trained and, um, and ready to receive a child. What about state funding for their programs outside of the work that you're doing at the Methodist Home? And of course, a lot of the funding, as you said, does go to your, your organization. But is the General Assembly uh, providing enough support where it's asked for these days to um, uh, answer these questions? We mentioned earlier that in many cases, it's not a matter of funding. It's a matter that the, uh, uh, the answers are not available. For example, we mentioned the school psychologists. Uh, they could pass a bill to put one in every school, but there's not – the labor supply is not there. Right. So – and, and which which comes first? What's <laughs> it's a chicken and egg situation? Uh, it, 
Yes, it, it is in some circumstances. The legislature has uh, stepped up the last couple of years and increased, for instance, uh, funding for foster families. I still think that the funding needs to be uh, increased beyond that. Anybody who's raising a biological child knows that that is not a money-making endeavor. And the things that uh, you're required to buy, much less the things that you would like to buy, um, don't get less expensive on any given day. And so while we have had an increase in foster parent rates, I'm going to argue that if we had even greater resources available, that more people would be drawn to that. And it's not that somebody would go into that as a for-profit business, but they would simply perhaps be motivated to go into it knowing that they weren't going to lose their shirt and that it wasn't going to be beastly expensive for them. And, and so that has been something that the legislature has, has done and done well, and we uh, trust that they're going to continue to be attentive to that. We also know that the legislature stepped up and provided funds for raising the age. And uh, we're into the second year now of that, and North Carolina has uh, gotten w with the rest of the country. And so they've provided additional funds for treatment and for services um, for juvenile offenders. And that has been a heartwarming and good thing to see. What about our juvenile justice system? Is that system working, and is it properly funded and manned? Um, I'm going to say that the resources that are generally allocated by the legislature for Department of Public Safety um, tend to be good, um, but they can be better. The real problem and the real crisis that's facing the Division of Juvenile Justice is that they are terribly understaffed. And they have got outstanding leadership with the uh, Deputy Secretary uh, William Lassiter, uh, among others, and a visionary team who really have a therapeutic and, and treatment approach. They know it's important to be smart on crime. You can't just be tough on crime. Uh, you've got to be smart on crime, and they are that. But they need um, court counselors, which is the juvenile justice term for somebody that's a probation officer, because the caseloads that they're carrying now are just unmanageable. They need um, staffing for their residential facilities and, and their programs because they've got people who are administrators who spent their entire career at a desk who are now pulling shifts uh, in the youth development centers, which is North Carolina's name for a youth prison. And they, they are in the midst of a staffing crunch. And, and of course, better compensation is uh, one of the ways to address that issue. Well, you know, it sounds like that the all of these various programs not only in the school system, but in your work and also the juvenile justice system and so forth, it sounds like you're facing the same problems that uh, business is uh, facing, and that is manpower shortage is just prevalent everywhere. 100%. And uh, I am a firm believer that COVID accelerated some trends that were already present in our society and our culture, and they surely did accelerate this one. And I look at those uh, unemployment numbers and see that they've fallen. And uh, it's hard not to get discouraged because um, we need more staff at Methodist Home for Children as well. Yeah, I know everywhere you look, you see signs we're hiring and so forth. I mean, it's, it's in all walks of life. Certainly, I mean, our company, we have a large number of openings. But almost everyone I talk to in business or in, or in government is saying the same thing. Mm -hmm. We have jobs available, and in some cases, the, the compensation is there, uh, that it's adequate, but there's just not people to fill it. What other lessons did you learn from COVID during that period of time that have been useful uh, in your work now? 
One of the things that um, we found out with regard to COVID was that we need to get a whole lot better um, as an agency with regard to technology. As you can imagine, with a group of employees that are primarily drawn from the School of Social Work and or schools of psychology or education, a lot of those people are not real tech savvy. And we face uh, some real challenges when we work county by county with departments of social services because they've got differing software and not all those programs um, are unified. And so we were still doing a whole lot of uh, chart and note keeping uh, by hand and having to collect and collate those at the end of the month. And since we weren't showing up at the office and since we, for a brief period of time, uh, you know, administration um, had to close we have be begun developing and actually we're you know, working with a software development firm so that we can do real-time uh, charting of the interactions and the teaching uh, of skills that is done by our staff with the youth who are in our um, group homes. And that, that, has been, that has been something that we have, um, an adapt adaptation that we've had to make and something that's worked well for us. If you joined our program late today, we discussed the, the, uh, gang situation in the first segment and that is a, a big problem so you may want to go back and listen to that segment but is that your number one concern right now and that and gun control uh certainly those two are at the top of the list of challenges that we face and of um capacity to do the most significant harm i think i think without a doubt and you had referenced on that you and i had grown up an age in which those things were not presenting themselves in the same fashion and they, they do pose a tremendous threat. So now if someone wants to get more information about the Methodist Home for Children, uh, how about giving us the instructions on how they can do that and how they can become volunteers and perhaps even uh, foster parents? Our website is mhfc.org and we'd be happy for anyone to visit that and to contact us as a result of that so that um, we might begin those conversations be happy for you to uh, pick up the phone and call. And if you were to call 919-754-3636, that would ring onto my phone and um, be happy to direct you to the right place and get the process started. Well, it's a, it's a problem that we all are facing and uh, thank goodness for the work you're doing and also all the many volunteers and also the paid workers who are working in these areas because it is so important to what we're doing. Uh, again, uh, we had uh, many, many topics. If you join the program late, you may want to go back and listen to the entire broadcast. And of course, we have a number of stations that carry a 30-minute version of the program, and so you're missing two segments. And if you'd like to hear those two segments, you can go online to carolinanewsmakers.com, carolinanewsmakers.com, and you can hear not only those two segments, or you can share the entire broadcast with a friend. Bruce, thank you so much for being with us, and we'll look forward to you being back uh, again soon and, and hopefully with uh, more good news. The program has been produced by Jason Kong, and he promises to be faithfully, as he does each week, that he will have another interesting guest with another interesting topic for us next week on this entire group of stations all across North Carolina. And so until next week, same time, same station, have a good week, everybody. Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com. Carolina Newsmakers is produced by Jason Kong 
Network engineer is Alan Sherrill. I'm Scott Fitzgerald inviting you to join us again next week, same time, for Carolina Newsmakers. Newsmakers.